Micah, do you know that you are a sinner in need of a savior? Yes. And do you know, do you trust in Jesus alone for that salvation? Yes. And do you intend to follow Jesus for the rest of your life? Yes. All right. Well, with that, my brother, I baptize you in the name of Jesus, raised to him, raised, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Our text this morning is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food of sacrifice to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her in, onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only all fast that you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with the rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Thanks, Delroy. Well, this has to seal the deal, right? I feel like I'm OGC's unofficial weeping prophet or something. So if anybody knows how to get me a discount for Jeremiah's ice cream, let me know. No, uh, jokes aside, this is God's very word. This is Jesus's word. And these words are just as living and active today as they were when they were written to the church in Thyatira. So it's an honor to be able to dive into these words this morning. And the main thing that we'll see from this text this morning is that even a church that is rich and full of good works isn't immune to compromise. And for this reason, we desperately need to cling to Jesus, whose victory is our victory. And to help us see that this morning, we'll be looking at three things. We'll be looking at how Thyatira, the church there, was a commendable church, that it was a compromising church, and then that it was also, at least in part, a conquering church. So Jesus starts this letter off to the church in Thyatira with what can sound to us like a very strange self-introduction. Hi, I'm Jesus. I have eyes that are flaming and shiny bronze feet. But what he's saying here, though it is strange to us, is it, it's, we have to remember it's apocalyptic literature. 
We have to remember that this apocalyptic literature is a, is a kind of, it's a way of writing that is meant to depict and convey deep spiritual realities. So what Jesus is doing here is he's using this uh, imagery here to show us what he's like and also to show us that he is the only person in the universe that is uniquely qualified to say what he's about to say to his church in Thyatira. So what does he say? He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Something to notice here is that this is, this is, he's using this imagery to show us that he is, he completely understands his church. He completely knows his church intimately. And there's nothing that, that can hide us. There's nothing that's not exposed to his eyes and that he doesn't already understand about the, the circumstances that the church finds itself in and that also the, how they might tend to react in these circumstances. His, his shiny bronze feet or his burnished bronze feet also show us that his, of his complete and total and absolute power and authority and of the fact that he is uniquely qualified to exercise that authority and that power in the way that only he can with perfect wisdom and with absolute impartiality and justice. And what this is, is it's like getting a letter from the ultimate counselor. The person who knows you uh, so well, they know all of your issues and all of your baggage, baggage and all of how you might tend to respond to everything in your life, the pressures in your life, and who is uniquely qualified to speak into your heart and into your life in the fairest of ways. So again, look at how he speaks to this church in Thyatira, whom he completely understands. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. And I just, I love that Jesus starts this letter off, this, this message off to his church in this way, because what he's doing is he's starting it off by commending them. So he says, essentially what he's saying is, I see you and I, I love the fact that you're, your confidence in me, your faith in me is producing sacrificial love, that it's producing service using the gifts that I've given you, and that it's producing patient endurance in the midst of some circumstances that are not so easy. And I love the fact that not only are these qualities present in you, they're actually growing, just like one would expect from a healthy church. I love that all of these things have gotten greater like a, a muscle that's been well worked out uh, than when you first put, placed your faith in me. I love that all of these things are present and that they're growing. And for this reason, you are a commendable church. And this is, this is high praise coming from the most important person in the universe. This makes looking, this makes getting the Con Congressional Medal of Honor or being knighted by the Queen of England look like getting a star on the board in kindergarten. This is a big deal coming from Jesus. So he commends his church. He commends his church for all of these qualities. And 
I love that Jesus starts off by commending his church because what he's doing is he's modeling for us what good communication and what good confrontation looks like. He's modeling for us what Jim preached last summer on, uh, what it looks like to be both confessional and missional at the same time. In other words, he's, com- he's, he's showing us what it looks like. He's modeling for us what it looks like to be to comprehend first who's in front of us, then to commend them, and then to critique. And if you think about it, all the people that you respect the most in your life, the people that, you, that really get you, who really know you, it's easier to receive criticism from someone like that, right? It's easier because you know that they completely understand you, and because they completely understand you, even though what they say that is if it's a criticism, even though it might hurt, even though it might sting, you know that they're ultimately for you. And you know that they're telling you the truth and that you need to hear it. And that's what's going on here is that Jesus is giving a criticism to this church because they need to hear it. Because while they were a commendable church, they were at the same time a compromising church. And in specific, the way in which they were compromising was putting them in danger of corroding from the inside out. See, different from the church in Pergamum, the, the, the dangers in the church in Pergamum were mainly outside of the church. It was, being, it was the danger of being conformed to the, to the society outside of the church. But different from that church, this church in Thyatira, its biggest danger was that of poisonous and toxic influences from within the church. So we have to ask ourselves, what are these toxic influences that brought on this critique from Jesus? Well, he tells us, he says, but I have this against you in verse 20, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So when we read this, we might be thinking, who is Jezebel? What does it mean that she's a prophetess? What is food sacrificed to idols? But before we jump in and trying to understand what this does mean or who Jezebel is, I think it's helpful to pause and try to understand what it doesn't mean. Because believe it or not, this label, this idea of Jezebel can kind of get tossed around in very unhelpful ways in our society today. And surprisingly, Amy and I just heard of one such an instance uh, recently. Uh, One of our friends went on a blind date. And as the date carried on, they were at dinner, it just became more and more evident that the guy she's on this date with didn't exactly share her same love for Jesus. And so, as I understand it, at some point during the date, she let him know very kindly, very gently, hey, you know, I I just don't see this going anywhere. I am not interested in further pursuing a romantic relationship with you. And as I understand it, this kind of precipitated the end of the date. And that was that, or so she thought. Because the next morning, she woke up and noticed she had a Facebook message from this guy who said, among many other things, that she had the spirit of Jezebel. Now, needless to say, any shred of a chance that she, he might have had of getting a second date utterly vanished after he sent this message. So I think it's safe to say that 
Jesus is not critiquing this church in Thyatira for being home to women who know what they're looking for in a husband. That would just be a bad understanding of what Jezebel means. And I hope it goes also without saying that Jesus is also not critiquing his church in Thyatira for being home to women who are bold, who are gifted, and and sharing the truth and spreading the gospel. And, you know, I love how the 19th century uh, British preacher Charles Spurgeon put this in, in one of his sermons talking about Lydia in Acts 16. He says, I feel right glad... I guess that's how they talked back then. I feel right glad that a woman was the first European to believe in Christ and that her household followed so closely behind. God has made great use of women and greatly honored them in the kingdom of Christ. Holy women ministered to our Lord when he was upon the earth. And since that time, much sacred work has been done by their patient hands. After the resurrection, it was a woman who was first commissioned to carry the glad tidings of the risen Christ And in Europe, where women were in future days to be set free from many of the trammels of the East, it seems fitting that a woman should be the first believer. And I mention this here because Lydia is actually from the very city of Thyatira. And that's why Charles Spurgeon goes on to say, it is indeed very likely that Lydia became the first herald of the gospel in her native place. Let the women who know the truth proclaim it, for why should their influence be lost? The Lord giveth the word, the women that publish the tidings are a great host. So again, Jesus is not critiquing his church in Thyatira for being home to women who are gifted and who are bold in in sharing the gospel and speaking truth. That's just not what he's doing. Instead, Jesus is critiquing his church in Thyatira for being tolerant, and in specific, for being tolerant of a woman who is claiming to be a prophetess and who is intentionally deceiving the church and teaching the church that they should practice and adopt sexual, uh, pagan sexual ethics and to blend their worship of Jesus with the worship of other gods, idols, so that they could have economic and societal prosperity. And this is precisely why Jesus uses this name Jezebel. Because it's highly unlikely, by the way, that that this woman in Thyatira, that her name was actually Jezebel. It's far more likely that Jesus is using this almost as like a code name, so to speak. And what that's supposed to do for us is remind us and remind the church at the time of Jezebel in First and Second Kings in the Old Testament. This was Queen Jezebel married to King of Ahab, who at the time, Queen Jezebel was very instrumental in introducing the, the worship of the fertility god Baal into the faith and practice of, of the Israelite worship. And this is the kind of person that Jesus is saying that the church in Thyatira is tolerating. But if you think about it, if we're honest, it might sound a little strange for us today that Jesus is actually critiquing a church for being tolerant, right? Because in our culture today, tolerance is typically a good thing, right? Yeah, the vast majority of the time, tolerance is really great. For instance, it's good, it's right 
that we should be kind and respectful to people around us who hold vastly, radically different idea, uh, beliefs and values than we do in life. It's especially good and right to be kind and respectful to people when we, dis- when we may disagree with them. But in our culture today, as good as tolerance is most of the time, we live in a culture nonetheless that Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor says that the sin which is not tolerated in our, in our culture is that of intolerance. And if you think about that understanding of tolerance, what that assumes is that tolerance is always good because it always means the unqualified agreement with, acceptance of, and assimilation of someone else's worldview or thoughts or beliefs or values into our own. But that's just not the case. That's not how tolerance works. Because tolerance can be a bad thing at some time. For instance, think about carbon monoxide, for example. Carbon monoxide is an invisible, odorless, poisonous gas that if it seeps into your home, it will compromise, and you breathe enough of it, it will compromise your health and it could even kill you. So trying to be tolerant of carbon monoxide would be very, very unwise. And it's the same way in the church when we tolerate poisonous and compromising influences in the church today, we will compromise our health and ultimately put ourselves in danger of death. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that right now, most of us most likely have had one or two things pop in our mind about what Jesus could be talking about here. That these that are particularly for us uh, poisonous and compromising to the church for us in our day. And I think that we would be remiss if we didn't take also into account that over the past couple of years especially in North America, almost every Christian, at least that I've talked to, has come to have a different idea of what is poisonous and compromising to Jesus' church. So keeping that in mind and keeping in mind what, we, what popped into our head most naturally, I'd like to ask us to consider two questions. First, is what we think is poisonous and compromising to Jesus and his church actually what Jesus says is compromising and poisonous to his church? And secondly, could there perhaps be things in our lives and in our community of believers in our church that we are tolerating that are far more poisonous than we might think that they are. Because here's the rub. How do you know that something is poisonous and compromising? I mean, didn't Jesus say that this woman was seducing and that she was deceiving the church and teaching them to to follow these pagan practices? And doesn't that suggest at least that these teachings were rather undetectable to the church, kind of like carbon monoxide. So how do you detect the undetectable? Well, Jesus, he tells us in verse 24, he says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. 
So what Jesus is doing here is he's giving the church sort of a spiritual carbon monoxide detector, so to speak. For instance, when he mentions the deep things of Satan, what he's doing is he's exposing this prophetess, Jezebel, codenamed Jezebel, because she went around teaching the church that she was teaching the, or that she had access to the deep things of God. And if you remember, Jesus said that she was calling herself a prophetess. So what that meant was that she was going around promoting herself and claiming that she had a unique and special revelation from God that was exclusive, it was mysterious, it was, it was secret, and of course that meant that only she could grant access to this exclusive, special revelation from God. So Jesus is saying that if anyone comes to you, this is the carbon monoxide detector, if anyone comes to you claiming that they have a special revelation from God, a deeper experience that you're missing out on unless you come to them, then you must not tolerate it because it's poisonous and it's deadly. And it's poisonous and it's deadly because it is fundamentally claiming something about God and who he is that is different than what he has said that he is. And if you think about it, that's precisely what the serpent in the garden did to Adam and Eve. He was convincing them about who God was, different from what God had said that he was. So, thankfully, we have in the New Testament the letter to the Hebrews, which is super clear about this. And that, the author to that letter says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what this is telling us and what Jesus is telling us here is that the deepest thing that you could know about God can be found only in Jesus, who is the very most special, deepest, clearest revelation of who God is that you can find. And that is the case because you can only know the deepest things about God in Jesus' finished work, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. So if you're here this morning and you, you desperately want a special revelation, a, a deep experience with God, that's a good thing. Look no further than the cross from where we know that the seriousness and the deadliness of our sin is held not against us, but against God's own son. Look, if, if you're wanting a special word from God this morning, look no further than the cross from where we hear the words, it is finished. And from where we have absolute confidence that there's literally nothing else that we need to do to, 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 find, to be found in God's good graces. And look no further than the empty tomb where we have proof, literal historical proof that anyone who has faith in Jesus has intimate and exclusive access to God now. And this is so necessary. It's so fundamental that we get this this morning. Because anytime that we look for the deepest things of God, the, the experience that's different and, and deeper for God outside of Jesus, 
and outside of his finished work, it will cause us to do two things. It will cause us to minimize the seriousness and deadliness of sin, and it will cause us to look to other places, other things to hope and to, that we will look to those things to, that cannot keep up their prom, or keep their promises for happiness and well-being in life. And that is poisonous and that is deadly. Y'all made me lose my spot. Give me a second. <laughs> ah, yes. But you see, that's exactly what this prophetess was doing. She was going around saying that she had special revelation from God, that she had this special experience that you needed from God. And what that actually was encouraging and leading to was sexual relationships outside of God's design for human flourishing. And she was also encouraging the blending of uh, God's of worship uh, of Jesus with other idols and in specific, that looked like taking part in pagan feasts, food offered to idols, so that Christians in that church could have prosperity economically and recognition in society. And Jesus knows, he's speaking to this church against this because he knows that this is poisonous because on the one hand, he created sex. He designed, he designed sex to be a, a crystal clear depiction of his ultimate vulnerability and covenant commitment to his people, to those who put faith in him. It, it was meant to show that this uh, unbridled vulnerability, this unbridled commitment that came at a cost to his own, uh, he, he laid aside all of himself, all of his rights, all of his freedom so that he could be united with us. And that's what sex is supposed to depict. So sex outside of that understanding, what it does is it ultimately ends up being transactional. Because what it says is, I'm willing to give, I'm willing to make myself vulnerable to you physically and naked to you physically, but I'm not willing to give up my own rights and my own freedom. And that's transactional and that is the furthest thing from how God relates to us. He is he, he gave up everything to be united to us at great cost to himself. And that's what sex is supposed to depict. Likewise, Jesus knows that mixing the worship of Jesus with other gods is also poisonous because it is likewise transactional. Because when we look to any other thing or any other person or even God himself, and we use that thing or that person or God himself as a means to get the prosperity that we actually want, it can only bring about spiritual, emotional, even economic ruin in the end. This is why these things were poisonous, and this is why they were deadly, and this is why Jesus is speaking against them. So what does he say? How does he address these influences? In verses 21 to 23, he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, 
I understand that this can sound pretty intense and even kind of harsh coming from the same Jesus who said he was gentle and lowly. And I understand that for some of us here this morning, it could sound that Jesus is just waiting to zap us if we get out of line. But that's, that's not what he's saying here. In fact, what he's trying to show us is that he has three things. That he is incredibly forbearing, that he is incredibly fair, and that he's incredibly faithful. Also to keep in mind, he is speaking directly about someone who's intentionally deceiving and teaching his church, not just anyone who might be struggling in, with idolatry in their heart or sexual immorality. This is a whole different category, but he shows us that he is faithful, uh, forbearing, and fair. So the first thing he says is, he's, he says, I gave her time to repent. This shows us that God is incredibly forbearing. He's not trigger happy. He's not just waiting to zap us if we step out of line. He first and foremost is patient with us. And he wants to give us time and space to see for ourselves how destructive the path is that we have chosen for ourselves and how harmful it is to ourselves, to others, and how it doesn't, it doesn't bode well for us. He wants our good. He doesn't want us to harm ourselves or others. Secondly, this shows us that he is incredibly fair because though he doesn't want us to continue in this self-destructive path that we're choosing, at the end of the day, if we stubbornly dig our heels in and we refuse to listen, he will ultimately give us what we want. And that's incredibly fair. And what that looks like is he will throw us into what we ourselves have chosen for ourselves at a certain point. And in this particular context, what that looks like is he literally gave uh, Jezebel, this Jezebel woman, and her children, which is not her literal children, it's her followers, he let them lie in the bed that they made for themselves. And so Jesus is incredibly fair because he will allow us to, he will give what, us what we want, even if when we stubbornly refuse to listen to him, even though it's going to hurt us. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. He's incredibly fair. And finally, he's incredibly faithful. Jesus is an incredibly faithful husband, so faithful that he will stop at nothing to, to plumb the depths of every nook and cranny of our hearts and minds, to find whatever might be poisonous or compromising to us, to root it out. He is completely uncompromising to, towards what compromises us and could lead to death. He's that loving. He's that jealous for his bride, the church. He's an incredibly faithful husband. And he's an incredibly faithful husband and uncompromising in this way because he wants his bride to conquer with him. So what does that mean? Well, he says, and later he says, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, now I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here again, 
I understand that this sounds, this could sound kind of intense, conquering and, and rods of iron. So what does Jesus mean by conquering? Well, he means nothing less than a church who holds fast to Jesus. He, he is looking for a church that holds fast to Jesus in the midst of pressures from outside of our walls or outside of our body of believers and also who will hold fast to Jesus in the midst of toxicity coming up from within. And who, he who holds fast will receive this morning star whose victory is our victory. And again, I love how Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says, Jesus has a throne, but he is not content with having a throne to himself. He, on his right hand, there must be his queen, the church who will share the same honors and the same, enjoy the same happiness and the same dignity which he possesses. So the conquering church that he's talking about here is the church who holds fast to Jesus until we get our morning star, Jesus himself, who is he himself, our dignity, our happiness, and our honor. It's holding fast to Jesus until finally we get to be in his unmediated, unmitigated presence, physical presence without the obstacles of sin and suffering for all of eternity. That's what holding fast, that's what conquering looks like. And finally, conquering, a conquering church is a church who finds their victory and finds our victory in the very victory of Jesus. So what that means is that every person and everything that stands in opposite, opposition to the ultimate good that is God, all of the evil, all of the injustice, all of the abuse, all of the selfishness and the pride in humanity, all of these things that stand in opposition to God will one day finally be vanquished. One day there will be a setting of the score once and for all. And he will conquer over these things. He will have the victory. So I want to leave us with these two thoughts. If we're here this morning and we feel in our heart, well, I have held fast. That's great, first of all. Continue to hold fast to Jesus. But if in our hearts, our, our tendency is to think, yes, I can't wait for Jesus to come and conquer and to come and, and smite and, and vanquish all of these terrible things in our culture and in our world that, that, have, that are pushing against God, all these evil influences that are pushing against and are opposing God in our society. And I can't wait for him to come and vindicate those of us who have held the line so far. I can't wait for that rod of iron. If that's your heart this morning, I just would like to ask you to remember that Jesus would never, ever rule with a rod of iron anyone for whom he wasn't first willing to be pierced with a nail of iron. And that's you, and that's Lord knows it's me. Because if it weren't for his grace, we would be the evil, unjust, abusive, selfish, prideful people that would be vanquished by Jesus' ultimate victory. And if you're here this morning and all of this sounds so strange and even scandalous, and if you're thinking, 
man, that sounds imperialistic. It sounds oppressive and tyrannical. Jesus is going to come and smite everybody who's in opposition to him. No thanks. If that's you this morning, just remember, same thing. Jesus would never, ever, ever rule with a rod of iron anyone for whom he wasn't already willing to be pierced with a nail of iron, with nails of iron. So this means that his victory, his conquering cannot be oppressive. It can't be tyrannical or or imperialistic because his victory required for him, him, he himself to be oppressed, for he himself to suffer the worst of injustices. It just can't be oppressive. And he did all of that so that he might show only grace to anyone who might take refuge in him. So if you're here this morning, consider what it might look like to take refuge in Jesus, in the person of whom this old hymn says, he that distributes crowns and thrones hangs on a tree and bleeds and groans. The prince of life resigns his breath, the king of glory bows to death. But see, see the wonders of his power. He triumphs in his dying hour. Thus, he arose and reigns above and conquers sinners by his love. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your son who did conquer us by his love, who came and was oppressed and was treated unjustly so that you could declare us just, so that you could declare us righteous. Thank you for your victory, and thank you that your victory did not come at our expense. Thank you for your grace. Um, We wait for the day in which we can finally be in your unmediated physical presence with our morning star, with our very happiness and dignity and honor. And we pray that you would make us a church at OGC that would hold fast in the midst of uh, outside and inside pressures. Help us, Father, by your Holy Spirit to see what we might perhaps be tolerating that is far more poisonous in our hearts and in our community that we might be willing to accept. I pray that you would do all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.